Good evening. I'm David McIntosh, one of the board of directors of the Federalist Society and one of the people that Dennis was referring to that, along with Steve and Lee Otis, helped found the Federalist Society 25 years ago. Um, I have to say, Steve, thank you for that wonderful remark. Um, we were very proud of Steve, although all of us think of him as, as a fellow student on the board. And one of our colleagues pointed out that here at Northwest, framed by two pillars of the First Amendment, the free exercise clause that prohibits government from restricting the free exercise of individuals in their religious beliefs, and the Establishment Clause that also prohibits our government under the Constitution from establishing an official religion. Um, in the last 25 years of the 20th century up and through today, those two clauses and the, the question of religious expression have been very controversial issues in the law, from the cases on prayer in the publicly funded schools to cases on whether individuals can proselytize in the public square um, to cases such as the one one of our speakers was very involved in as a, a named party on the pledge that is the legal requirement of pledging fidelity to our country. Um, and I, I want to mention a case that I'm aware of because it comes from my home state of Indiana and, and throw it out there and let the speakers address it if they want to or ignore it if they doesn't fit into what they would have to say. But there was an interesting case that came up in where the federal district court was asked to disallow prayer in the assembly, the lower house or general assembly of the Indiana state legislature. And specifically, the Speaker of the House, um, Brian Bosma, who's a named party in the case, allowed ministers from different faiths to come and give an opening prayer each morning before the General Assembly was convened into session. The court found that this violated the Establishment Clause, um, specifically when some of the ministers mentioned their particular belief in God, specifically Jesus Christ, and went on to conclude that certain prayers would be allowable if they confined them to a generic uh, version of God, uh, saying that the word God or Allah might be acceptable as generic expressions of, of a God without referring to the particular belief in God. Um, that is on appeal on the Seventh Circuit. Um, some have said that in a strange way, the the district court may have engaged in a judicial establishment of religion in stating that certain expressions of religious faith were acceptable and others were not. Um, but it shows, I think, some of the tension between the free exercise clause in one hand and accommodation of religion and expression in, in public set settings and the establishment clause. But without further ado, I'm going to allow our speakers to tackle that issue. Um, I'm going to introduce both of them and then so we keep the continuity of tonight's debate and then allow them to begin. Our first speaker will be Reverend Dr. Michael Newdow, who is the founder, as, as your brochures will tell you, of the First Amendment Church of the True Science Facts. Um, and he is best known for challenging the constitutionality of the words under God um, in the pledge in Elk Grove Unified School District versus Newdow. Our second speaker is Seamus Hassan, and in your brochure referred to as Kevin Hassan, 
Uh, he is the founder and president of the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberties and has represented clients from various religious traditions um, in their appearances before courts on religious freedom. Um, he's also an author of a book, The Right to be Wrong, Ending the Cultural War Over Religion in America. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Michael to kick us off. We have asked each of them to speak and then give them a moment to rebut. And then after that, we'll open it up for questions from the floor. Michael? Your choice. I can't talk and sit, so I have to stand. I want to thank everybody for, for coming. I want to thank the Federalist Society for having me. It's good to be among people who uh, agree that the Constitution is a marvelous document and filled with wisdom and magnificence, and we'll be here to talk about that tonight. We're going to discuss religion in the public square, and I hope people understand that we're probably in pretty much an agreement. I'm an atheist, but I think that, like you do, I imagine, that you know, children who go to school should be able to pray whenever they want to in school, as long as, as it's not disruptive. I think that employees for the federal government or any government should be able to have a Bible on their desk or that church groups that choose to use facilities that are open to the public should be able to use those facilities for themselves and to worship. But I want you to understand that the public square, at least as I envision it, is the public's square. It's not the government. Not the government. And though the government normally has an opportunity to go into the public square and to talk about any, any matter it chooses, it's not allowed to talk about religion. That's what's forbidden by the Establishment Clause. It can talk about it, but it can't take a position on religion. And our government has done that many times, and we're going to discuss that in a little bit. So I hope you understand that, that the battle, at least as I see it, is not between people who do or don't believe in God. It's between people who do or don't believe in equality, because that's what the whole Establishment Clause is about. It's essentially the first Equal Protection Clause. It says that we're going to treat everyone and respect everyone's religious views equally in this country. It was a marvelous idea. Nobody had done that before. That's what we gave to the world, and I think we should be proud of that. Now, I was going to talk about the framers, and I have a whole bunch of stuff that I usually speak on, but it's interesting that just this week, uh, thanks to the Family Research Council, I'm on their, their listserv, and they sent me a message that I got yesterday that said that their attorney general, Alberto Gonzalez, had given a speech just this past Tuesday. And so I went and looked at that speech, and I'm going to talk about that instead. Uh, he was in Nashville, Tennessee. It was before the uh, Executive Council for the Southern Baptist Convention. And he was talking about religious liberty in this nation. And he started by saying, well, one of the things he said is that he's charged by the president with protecting and preserving not only the safety and security of all Americans, and that's all Americans, but also their rights, liberties, and freedoms. And one of our most cherished freedoms, he said, defines us as a nation and differentiates us from the extremists who are our enemies, and that's religious freedom. It is the first freedom, appearing before freedom of speech, freedom of the press, before all those other crucial rights. This freedom of religion is not confined to the members of one church or the followers of one set of beliefs. It is a universal right that applies to all of the people or the people of all faiths. Attorney General Gonzalez told his audience that the Justice Department has supported new laws to strengthen religious freedoms, that it has made great progress in educating towns and cities about subtle but pervasive forms of religious discrimination, 
and that the department, quote, takes seriously the protection of this right for all people. He spoke of President Bush, who declared his commitment to this issue last year by saying we reject religious discrimination in every form and we continue our efforts to oppose prejudice and counter any infringements on religious freedom. This is the Attorney General of the United States, a nation that tells its atheistic citizens that if they want to carry money, they have to bear the message, in God we trust. The United States that tells its atheistic citizens that the government will sponsor a national day of prayer to God. The United States that takes the money, the tax dollars of atheistic citizens, and spends them on chaplains in each House of Congress so that every legislative session can begin with a prayer to an entity that they explicitly deny. The United States that has a Supreme Court, the guardian of their religious liberties, that starts off each of its sessions with God save the United States and this honorable court. The United States of America that tells its atheists that if they wish to join their fellow citizens and watch the inauguration of their president, they'll have to countenance the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court altering the text that is specified in the Constitution as he spatchcocks the purely religious phrase, so help me God, into the presidential oath of office. The United States of America, which rather than paying homage to our ingenuity, to our strength, to our leadership, to our diversity, to our devotion to the rule of law, to our commitment to equality and to liberty, and especially religious liberty, chooses as its national motto, in God we trust, thus paying homage to a religious notion they specifically reject. The United States that tells its atheistic parents that if they choose to send their children to the public schools, those children every morning will be asked to stand up, to face the flag of the United States of America, to place their hands over their hearts, and to say that we are one nation under God. In the face of these governmental practices, Attorney General Gonzalez tells us that we are not like the terrorist who seeks to impose his views on others. Really. No, we will strengthen and preserve religious liberty in this country and commit to even greater enforcement of religious rights for all Americans. That's what he said. You know what the first line was that Alberto Gonzalez used in his speech on Tuesday? In which he was telling us about how he really stands for the dedication to respect the religious beliefs of all Americans? He started with the following. Most Americans believe in God. So he started his talk. I don't know, somehow I find it difficult to believe that if you were talking about racial discrimination and racial equality, he'd start off by saying, most Americans are white. Or if we were talking on the upholding the legal rights of immigrants, legal immigrants, he'd be saying most Americans speak English. Would you do that, Attorney General Gonzalez? Most Americans believe in God. How does anyone, especially the nation's attorney general, find that to be of any relevance to the ideals of religious equality and freedom? He followed that sentence with, and so they naturally understand and accept the limitations and imperfections that are part of being human. This was used in reference to the actions of President Bush, as if without believing in some supreme being, it would be impossible to recognize the errors that have been made by the current administration. He says that this great nation of ours is the most diverse and tolerant in the history of the world, and then attaches to this notion the claim that it is somehow related to our trust in a higher power. Ultimately, God will be the judge, he says, as he assures his Baptist audience that he will, quote, work with you 
and other people of faith, i.e. other people who believe in God, to protect our religious freedoms. He concluded his speech on how his dedication to having the Justice Department ensure that the religious, of all, all, the religious views of all Americans are respected by saying what everyone always says when they give their speeches. He ended up, may God bless you all. May he continue to guide and watch over you. And may he continue to bless the United States of America. Let me invite you to substitute some other religious ideology for the word God, one that you don't believe in. And then consider those words by the Attorney General of the United States of America. If you're a Jew or a Muslim, put in Jesus. May Jesus bless you all. May Jesus continue to guide and watch over you. And may Jesus continue to bless the United States of America. If you're a Catholic, put in Protestantism. If you're a Baptist, put in Allah. Would anyone not see the hypocrisy and the bigotry then? The speech was made to announce that the Department of Justice is, quote, initiating a program of public education to make certain that people know their rights and to build relationships with religious, civil rights, and community leaders to ensure that religious liberty concerns are brought to our attention. As soon as I get a minute, I plan on bringing to their attention the religious hypocrisy and bigotry of the head of the Department of Justice and suggest that maybe they instruct him on the principles of religious liberty that he obviously has yet to understand. Thank you. If you'll excuse me, I'll speak sitting down. You may also notice that uh, I'm shaking a little bit. This is not because I'm afraid of you. It's because I'm afraid of him. <laughs> this is actually the only thing that uh, oh, um, Muhammad Ali and I have in common. Um, Parkinson's is good for some things. I make a much better martini now that I have Parkinson's. <laughs> it's a perfect excuse for a bad golf game. Um, the golf game is no worse than it ever was, really. But people used to look at me and say, ah, would you look at that? He's trying to play golf. Now they say, would you look at that? He's trying to play golf. <laughs> and it gets you good parking spaces. Uh, on the whole, though, I really can't recommend it. Um, and it's not particularly good for public speaking, so please bear with me. Religious liberty is an issue because of religious diversity. If we all lived in Vatican City State or perhaps one rural village in Utah, we wouldn't talk about religious liberty. We talk about religious liberty because we don't, in fact, live in those circumstances. We live in a place where a great variety of people believe a great variety of things, and some people believe nothing at all. When did this begin, and what is the, uh, what is the w way forward? It began on the Mayflower. The opening shots of the culture war were fired on the Mayflower. The, the great American myth is that the pilgrims came from England looking for religious freedom, found it, and we all lived happily ever after. Well, they weren't, they didn't, and we haven't. Um, the Mayflower actually was carrying people, a majority of whom, at least the majority of the pilgrims, coming from Holland. They'd fled England ten years earlier, and they had in Holland all the tolerance they ever wanted, and then some. They, were getting, uh, they weren't getting persecuted, they were getting um, uh, assimilated. They, they fled Holland because of the, uh, the kids were marrying into the locals. And they were joined with some, by some separatists from England. And the great irony is that they were joined by another group of people, too. They were fleeing England for Holland, and they were Holland for the wilderness to get away from impurity, they were joined by the impure. In order to be able to afford to move to America, they had to apply for 
financial backing from financiers in London. As a condition for their financial backing, they required to bring along experts who knew something about building a new uh, village in the wilderness. So there you have in the Mayflower two groups of people. One group sitting there, you can picture them, their hands on their chins saying, or their chins on their hands rather, saying, um, great, we flee England for Holland, now Holland for the wilderness to get away from impurity, and impurity is tagged along. Now what are we going to do? You can picture the other group of people saying, this is just great. We leave our jobs, we leave our homes because this is the best job we can find and here we are stuck with a bunch of holier-than-thou zealots and we're all going to go live in the woods together. Uh, wonderful. And there in microcosm we have the um, dilemma we still face. How do you live together with people when you disagree with them about what uh, life means in the first place? I think the answer is to recognize that religious liberty is grounded in conscience. It's grounded in the fact that each of us has a drive within us to seek the true and seek the, the, the good, a drive within us that says we must embrace the true and the good as we believe we found it, and a social nature that wants to express it. And therefore, Mr. Newdow has the same drive to embrace what, I, what I'm firmly convinced is his erroneous view that there is nothing out there, as I have to, to embrace what I'm convinced is utterly true that there is God out there, and vice versa. I have the same duty as he does. He has the same duty as I do. Therefore, because we have the same duty, we have the same right. I have the right to be right. He has the right to be wrong. <laughs> Which conveniently is the title of my book. It's available on Amazon. It makes wonderful gifts. <laughs> uh, how do you put that together in a society? How do you put that together in legal structures where there's one government over people who believe in something, people who believe in something else, some people who believe in yet a third thing, and some people who believe in nothing at all. I think you do it by realizing that human nature includes this drive for the true and the good, this, this drive to seek religious truth, even among those people who conclude at the end of the, the search that there is no such thing. Human nature includes this, or in other words, because the religious impulse is natural to human beings, religious expression is natural to human culture. Therefore, we have such things as nativity scenes at Christmas and menorahs at Hanukkah, just as we have fireworks on the 4th of July and pumpkins on Thanksgiving. If you think about it, standards for ethnic and racial distinctions under the 14th Amendment, government racial distinctions and government ethnic distinctions under the 14th Amendment, are identical to the standards for government religious distinctions under the 1st Amendment. They both require a compelling state interest, something that's rarely seen in the wild. Nevertheless, it's now African American History Month. It has been, by my count, the 12th African American History Month since I founded the Beckett Fund. No one has yet applied for an injunction on behalf of Anglo-Americans, saying this is a racist power grab in the beginning shots of apartheid. But March 17th are peaceful. Anglophiles don't sue to enjoin St. Patrick's Day parades as racist supremacist or Irish supremacist plots. This is not the beginning of ethnic cleansing. But Decembers are busy every year as people seek to defend or seek to assault, really, menorahs and nativity scenes as the beginning of the next St. Bartholomew's Day. Why should this be? Why should we have identical legal standards for ethnic and racial distinctions on one hand and religious distinctions on the other and have such different 
legal treatment of the two and social treatment of the two. We don't deal with diversity in America by pretending we're all white. We don't deal with diversity in America by pretending we're all male. We don't deal with pretending we're all Irish. Why should we deal with diversity in America by pretending we're all agnostic? It doesn't make sense. We should do instead is have a thousand flowers to bloom. That uh, and it's Christmas and nativity scene should be seen as normal. If it's Hanukkah, the menorah should be seen as normal. And various cultural efforts throughout the year, all of which reinforce one another that this is a, this is a place where human cultures flourishes and, and all elements of human culture find their place in public life. Now, is everybody Christian? Is everybody Jewish? No, everybody's not Irish either. One of the skills you need to live in a pluralistic society is a skill to be able to listen respectfully to ideas you disagree with and respond to ideas of your own rather than attempt censorship. <laughs> to look at art that you find puzzling or ugly and respond with better art of your own rather than attempt at censorship and so forth. What then would we do when we move beyond culture a little bit and talk about things like the Pledge of Allegiance? And some full disclosure, I'm on the other side of the case. Mr. Newdow is the plaintiff. I represent the intervener defendants, the other kids in the class, who uh, parents want them specifically to, to pledge their allegiance to one nation under God. Why is that? Are we some sort of triumphalist saying we're better than you because we believe in God and you don't? No. Reading legislative history is usually a very depressing thing to do. Um, usually you find legislators who, uh, if they haven't expanded and revised their remarks, are bumbling around don't know, not knowing what they talk about. In the case of the uh, addition to the One Nation Under God and the Pledge of Allegiance, however, it's a very uplifting experience because the debate consists of people saying, we want to distinguish our Pledge of Allegiance to our republic from the Pledge of Allegiance the Soviets give to their republic, not just because they believe in no God, we believe in God, but because we believe in the dignity of the human person. We believe in a system where rights come not from the state, which can then take them away, but from a source higher than the state, which the state must respect. Ever since the founding of the republic, we've understood the importance of the question, where do our rights come from? Ever since the founding of the republic, we've understood to concede they come from the state alone is to concede that the state may take them away through some process, through some legislation or whatever. What do we say to Mr. Newdow then, who says, well, you're depriving me of my religious liberty by telling me that I have such rights? I think we say that ever since the time of Aristotle, whether there is a God has been considered not a question of theology or religion, but a question of philosophy. Who that God may be is a theological question. Whether there is a God in the first place is a philosophical one. That ever since Aristotle, we've, we've, we've uh, agreed, can be decided on reason alone. In that tradition stands Thomas Jefferson, who says that it is self-evident there is a creator who is the source of our rights. The government bought into that 
philosophy at the beginning of the Republic. And in uh, Zorak versus Foss and Justice Douglas, however, he was blinded by the light one day, said uh, a very intelligent thing. That our institutions presuppose a supreme being. Not that we declare there to be a supreme being, not that we proclaim a supreme being, but that we presuppose a supreme being. That is, in fact, what our institutions do. And that is the reason for all the things that Mr. Newdow lists, the chaplains, the, the national motto, the Declaration of Independence. It shows up more subtly in the Constitution. It shows up in references to the law of nations in the preamble, the blessings of liberty in the preamble, to the uh, hint of other sorts of rights in the Ninth Amendment. But it's there. The presupposition that there is a supreme being whom we don't know, who the state is incapable of knowing who it is, but it's nonetheless capable of noticing and identifying as the basis of our rights. Mr. Newdow is much better off with people like me saying that his right to be wrong is grounded in an inalienable right that no one can ever take away than he would ever be under a circumstance of uh, positivism. Thank you. Dr. Newdow. The Supreme Court has said there's a crucial difference between government speech endorsing religion, which the Establishment Clause forbids, and private speech endorsing religion, which the Free Speech and Free Exercise Clauses protect. And what we have to understand when we go through this debate is who's doing their talking. If you want to stick a crash scene on your front lawn or at your church, you have every right to do that. What you don't have the right is to get my government, our government, to do your religious bidding. Nor do I have a right to get my government, your government, our government, to do my religious bidding. I have never asked for a Pledge of Allegiance where the little children are told by their teachers to stand up, face the flag of the United States, place your hand over your heart, and say we are one nation that denies God exists. That's the opposite of what's going on now with the Pledge of Allegiance, where we say, place your hand over your heart, and say we are a nation where God does exist. What we should say is what the framers continually, see, continually said about the Constitution is nothing. We have no power in the federal government to get involved and to take positions on religion. And you have to understand who's doing the talking at all times. If it's individuals doing the talking, then fine, they have every right under the Free Exercise Clause. If it's the government doing the talking, they have zero right under the Establishment Clause. Seamus spoke about the famous quote from Zorak B. Clausen, we are a religious people whose institutions presuppose a supreme being. That's what Justice Douglas wrote. But he saw how his words were being twisted, and after 10 years, he spoke about that. He said, yes, I said that. But if a religious leaven is to be worked into the affairs of our people, it is to be done by individuals and groups, not by government. We saw, the framers saw throughout history, that government getting involved with religion is a dangerous, very dangerous, deadly thing. And you don't have to go back too far in history. As a matter of fact, you can pick up a newspaper today and look in Iraq or go back not too far and look in Sudan or Northern Ireland or Kosovo or Indonesia or China or throughout all the world and see all of the religious conflicts. Our framers decided that the best way to avoid all of that is to stay out of the business altogether. Nobody is asking for the government to take my position. What we're asking for is the government to stay neutral. And one of the complaints I always hear is, well, you want it your way. 
Well, you have to know which, which way I'm talking about, we're talking about. If you're talking about I want it my way, the way the Constitution demands that we remain neutral in terms of religion, yes, I want it my way. If you're talking about I want it my way, I want my religious philosophy that God doesn't exist espoused by the government, not at all, and I challenge anyone to find the first time I've ever even suggested any such a thing. There's a whole bunch of ideas here that you have to bear in mind, and you can just go back to the history. I'm not sure. I was having some difficulty hearing, so I'm not sure, but I, I heard Seamus speaking about the, the Mayfire Compact, and people always talk about that, you know, they came here for the glory of God. The actual quote is that they came for the glory of God and advancement of the Christian faith and the honor of our king and country. So if you want to go back in that sort of historical vein and look for little vignettes where we say, yes, our framers and the people who brought, came to this country believed in God, yes, they also believed in Jesus. As a matter of fact, they believed in Protestant Christianity. They couldn't stand those papists. And if you look back in history, you might as well just as, just as easily say that we are one nation under Protestant Christianity. What we are is a nation of a whole bunch of diverse people who have different views on religion, and the only way we can maintain peace in our society, the best way, at least as the framers thought, and I think they were correct, is to stay out of this business altogether. Thank you. It's not possible to stay out of this business altogether. In a society where we were ruled by the, uh, the proverbial night watchman of libertarians where all the government ever did was to collect taxes and, and maybe buy post, maybe issue postage stamps for it and provide for the common defense that the government would have little to say about religion because the government would have little to say about anything but in a society where the government celebrates everything from National Catfish Day to National Jukebox Week and I'm not making those up <laughs> in, a, in a society where the government has a school system that's uh, comprehensive from kindergarten through graduate school, purports to teach you everything you need to know about life from literature to sex. In a society where the government is interested in not only speaking about the arts, but in choosing which arts to underwrite and, and, and perform in them, it's natural that government is going to wind up having to say something about religion because people are religious people. Because the religious impulse is natural to human beings, religious expression is natural to human culture. The question is how the government should do that. Now, to skip ahead to the, the Pledge of Allegiance. The Pledge of Allegiance case, the Barnett case that was brought in the 40s, was brought on behalf of Jehovah's Witnesses, kids whose parents think that pledging allegiance to the flag without anything one nation under God, and that wasn't added until later, Simply pledging allegiance to the flag was idolatry. It was a religious uh, um, exercise that violated their, their, their consciences. The Supreme Court agreed and st struck it down, but the remedy was that the kid got to sit out, respectfully sit out, not that everybody else got to be silenced. The logic of the Jehovah's Witnesses' position in Barnett is identical to the logic of Mr. Newdow's position in this case. He's, this represents a religious exercise in his view. I don't think it is. I think it's an exercise in political theory. But he recognizes, he says it's an exercise in religious uh, behavior. Just the same way the Jehovah's Witness kids said that what most of the rest of us don't recognize as a religious exercise at all, the original Pledge of Allegiance was one for them. And of course you can't be compelled, Mr. Newdow's 
plaintiffs can't be compelled to uh, pledge allegiance to one nation under God or pledge allegiance at all against their consciences. But the remedy should be the same because the, the situation is the same. In each case, for someone who gets to sit out respectfully, who conscientiously objects, doesn't get to silence everybody else. Doesn't get to silence the culture's resonance with things religious that are the, the uh, significant part of the lives of its people. Now to repeat, whether God exists, this is a little counterintuitive, but it really is the Western philosophical tradition ever since Aristotle and up through Sartre, who disagrees whether God exists, but agrees it's a proper question for philosophy to answer. It's a philosophical question whether God exists, not a religious one. And in the, in the context of, of uh, the Declaration of Independence, it's a political philosophy that's, that's being enunciated. That there's a creator who's the source of our rights, which makes our rights much more secure than if there were nothing other than the government backing them up with uh, nothing but promises. For the government to uh, turn that on its head and say, Mr. Newdow has the right not to hear where we think his rights come from, changes the whole s structure, not only of the, the, uh, not only the Pledge of Allegiance, but really of our uh, system of philosophy underlying the, the uh, Constitution itself. Thank you. Thank you both. Um, now we'll turn to the section of the program where you all are welcome to ask questions of our speakers. I'm going to, as the moderator, as I would request that you come down to the two microphones here in the front um, and please give us your name and what school you're from. So that, and please use the microphone so that everybody in the auditorium can hear you. Well, while you're doing that, let me, I've got a question for each of them. Um, for Dr. Newdow, the question I've got that struck me was in a, in a government sort of famously characterized by President Lincoln as a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, how do you distinguish between private persons and government? I think that's very easy. You just look at who's doing the talking. The Pledge of Allegiance is the nation's Pledge of Allegiance. If any individual wants to throw in, I think we are one nation under Jesus or under God or under Buddha or under no God, that individual has every right to do that. But it's codified in the United States Code that the Pledge of Allegiance, our nation's pledge, is one nation under God. Our national motto is codified. It says, in God we trust. That's not an individual's. I mean, I'm not sure why there would be a difficulty. Just look at who's doing the speaking. It's the government doing the speaking when it puts it as our nation's motto, as our nation's pledge, as our nation's chaplain, as our nation's whatever. Um, I think it's a very simple distinction. I think what Lincoln was trying to say is there is no government aside from the people. Well, I mean, our, our whole structure is that we have, uh, you know, a government and the government will stay out of the religion business. You know, we, we have a constitutional democracy, if, if you're referring, you know, the people are very variable in terms of religion. That's the whole point of the religion clause is that we don't have a, a uniformity of belief. And the structure of the Constitution and the First Amendment would, took that into account and said, look, we're not going to get involved and allow these, these um, conflicts to occur in our society. And, and my question for Seamus is, um, where would you draw the line where governmental action crosses over and, and is a violation of the Establishment Clause? 
If you make, it, make the question the Establishment Clause or the Free Exercise Clause, we can answer the question more quickly. If you, if you ask just about the Establishment Clause, I'm going to have to go into the Incorporation Doctrine. Your choice. <laughs> yeah. When the, the uh, government action violates the Constitution, when it, it coerces anybody to believe anything he or she in conscience doesn't believe, or to disbelieve something he or she in conscience believes, or to do something he's supposed to do in conscience, or not to do something she's not supposed to do in conscience. When the government coerces somebody to do something, that's when the Constitution is violated. Establishments of religion declaring an official religion are inherently coercive and therefore violate my view of the Free Exercise Clause. But simply saying one nation under God, taking the philosophical position that there is a God who's the source of our rights, which is the tradition in which we, the, the, our, our nation was founded, in which the tradition in which it stands, is not saying anything religious whatsoever. It's saying something philosophical. And therefore, the Establishment Clause doesn't have anything to say about it. The Free Exercise and the Free Speech Clause mean you can't be compelled to say it, but the remedy is that you don't have to say it yourself, not that everyone else is silenced. Thank you. Uh, Professor Calabrese? Uh, sure. I, I wanted to ask a question to Mr. Newdow. Um, I wanted to ask how far you would press your uh, non-accommodation of religious belief, and in particular, um, would you agree with a decision that uh, Judge Richard Posner handed down about 10 years ago here in Chicago in which he struck down uh, Good Friday as a holiday for the public schools on the grounds that that was an endorsement of religion? And if so, is the making of Christmas or Thanksgiving holidays an endorsement of religion that needs to be struck down? Is the use of 2007 for the calendar denoting 2007 years since the birth of Jesus uh, uh, something that's an endorsement of religion? And if one casts all those things aside, uh, don't you make it impossible to accommodate the beliefs of most people in the country who have always accepted those things? Well, I mean, we, we have a problem because we have a, a history and we certainly have incorporated a number of things into our society. <laughs> Um, you know, eventually things do lose their, their religious significance to a significant degree. So, you know, Thanksgiving, I think most people don't think of, or lots of people don't think of as giving thanks to God, even though that's the name of it. 2007, you need a time, we chose that time, and so, you know, that's what everybody uses. I don't think people are thinking about Jesus when they're, when they're sitting there and saying it's 2007. I don't even think it goes by their mind. Um, ideally, yeah, I think we should get rid of all of that stuff. Practically, I don't think we can. But I think there's a big difference between that and standing a little child up and saying that we are one nation under God, giving those words meaning. Those were significant words. Congress in 1954 passed an act that did nothing but take the Pledge of Allegiance, which was neutral for 62 years, got us through two world wars and a Great Depression, and suddenly stuck in the two words, under God, did nothing else. That's a violation of the, of the Constitution. To have a motto, to say that it is our motto, the, the essence of our being, is that in God we trust which means nothing except for those, those four words, seems to me that's gone beyond the line. There are certainly going to be close cases. These, the ones that I bring are not. They're just clearly beyond the, beyond the limits. Yes, sir. Uh, Dr. Newdow, <clears throat> I'm you glad tell, to hear... You can tell what the audience is here. They're coming to me. Go ahead. I'm glad to hear you recognize we have a history. Uh, <laughs> because you uh, seem to repudiate the Declaration 
of independence, which is common in the legal profession today. The uh, Declaration of Independence speaks of God four times, once as creator, and the other three times in the, func in the three functions of government, the supreme judge, the supreme legislator, and the supreme executive. Now, I don't know how you, I presume you don't think the Declaration of Independence has any legal relevance or any bearing on the Constitution, but is it possible for a government or a government official to adopt a theoretical philosophy, speak it, and never require anybody to embrace it. Has Uncle Sam done that? Okay, well, I'm, I'm not sure exactly where you're going. Let me, let me first address the one issue which, which Seamus continually mentions, that, that this is a political philosophy, this belief in God. The Supreme Court's already addressed that. It said concepts concerning God or the supreme being of some sort are manifestly religious. These concepts do not shed their religiosity merely because they are presented as a philosophy. Right? We're talking about belief in God. That's a religious belief. As far as the Declaration of Independence, if, in fact, when we went to court, we were judging things because they were undeclarational, I wouldn't have brought this case. I would have given up. You're right. Under the Declaration of Independence, which I only know about the Supreme Judge of the world, I don't know about the executive and the legislative branch, but in any event, those four references to God certainly show that at the time of the Declaration of Independence in 1776, the government was thinking, or it wasn't the government, but under that document, they were thinking about God, and, and God was an accepted part of the, the government of the framework. However, if you continue to read the, the Declaration of Independence, they have those five truths that they, they have there. The first one, of course, is all men are created equal. The second one is they're endowed by their creator. There's a tension there. If we include in equality the idea that we're going to respect religious beliefs equally, you can't have the second one which says they were endowed by their creator. And we can look to the fifth one which says that when any, whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends that they're talking about, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. They were announcing to the world that they were going to come up with a framework for government. And the framework that they came up with first also recognized God, the Articles of Confederation. And then they came up with the Constitution. And amazingly, the Constitution doesn't recognize God. That was not an inadvertent oversight. They knew about it. People complained about it. They said, we're not putting God in this Constitution. They have a preamble of we the people. doesn't mention God. Article 2, which has the only oath of office, the president's oath of office, does not end, so help me God, even though oaths of office had so help me God all over the place. Article 6 has the test oath clause. Right? Every single Constitution, none of them had a test oath clause like we have in our federal Constitution. Of the 11 Constitutions that were in effect, Nine had religious tests. You had to either be a Christian or a Protestant in four of the states. You had to be something. The other two just were mute on the subject. Our Constitution says no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. Why did they put that in there? They were meeting in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania had an oath of office that began, I do believe in one God, the creator and governor of the universe. Why isn't that in our Constitution? 
I think the reason is quite clear, because they told us the reason. Everyone who spoke on the Constitution said that, no, that the government, the federal government, has no power to legislate on religious matters. Richard Dodd State, who went before, before, and I can name a whole bunch of people, but I'll just start with that one, said, as to the subject of religion, no power is given to the general government to interfere with it at all. Any act of Congress on this subject would be a usurpation. And I'll mention one other, James Madison, the father of the Constitution, who said there's not a shadow of right in the general government to intermeddle with religion. Its least interference with it would be a most flagrant usurpation. If everybody says those things, it seems to me extraordinary to come back and say, well, what they really meant was to have God in our government. Can I respond? Yes. I guess I have to get into the incorporation doctrine after all. <laughs> um, you have to recall the context in which, first of all, the unamended Constitution was written, and then the, the First Amendment was, was written. Coming off the Articles of Confederation, which uh, is hair-raising on the subject of religion, Article 3 of the Articles says, for example, that in the event of war on account of religion or some other means, some other basis, the states will be required to come to each other's mutual defense. So wars of religion were thought to be thinkable, and likely in American soil at that time. In order to form a more perfect union, one more perfect than the Articles of Confederation had managed to come up with, we came up with in the current Constitution, the unamended text of our current Constitution. And what does it do? Where the Articles of Confederation had a patchwork of state-supported religions and a patchwork of states with state-supported religions, what did our Constitution do? It had a patchwork of states with state-supported religions. And, um, Article 6 that uh, Dr. Newdow refers to does have the uh, no religious test clause, but it prefaces it with the oath clause, Article 6, Section 3, which says that an oath or affirmation, should either, be, either one should be acceptable for uh, federal or state offices. The affirmation is there to accommodate the uh, consciences of Quakers who couldn't swear but could affirm. So that's there to accommodate the oaths of office taken by either federal or state officials. The next line says, but no religious test shall ever be required for any office of trust under the United States. That is to say, only the federal officials were free from religious tests. Why was that? Because, as Dr. Newdow states, most of the states had religious tests and they wanted to keep them. So the accommodation that was reached was that religion would be a matter for state law legislation, not federal legislation, but state legislation. The uh, Constitution did not have, have anything, did not have nothing, so to speak, to do with religion, as Dr. Newdow states. It was it regarded religion as a matter of federalism. That was something the states were to do. The federal government was to stay out of. Now there are fleeting references to religion in the Constitution. It's not, it's not true that there aren't any. The law of nations in the, in the preamble is not the, the bunch of treaties that were in force at the time. It's the, the, the uh, agreed-upon concepts of the natural law that all the, the uh, countries of the West agreed on. The blessings of liberty. Blessings was a, a loaded term in, in the 18th century, and blessings didn't appear by metaphysical spontaneous combustion. They came from a blesser. Uh, the, Bless um, you. Thank you. When um, all of this comes to incorporation, we have a conundrum because for the first 
180 years or so, trying to do the math quickly. The Establishment Clause did not apply to the states. The Free Exercise Clause did not apply to the states. The Speech Clause did not apply to the states, etc. For those of you who are first years, this is not controversial. I've got other controversial things to say, but this isn't one of them. Um, when it came time to incorporate, the, uh, when the Supreme Court decided it came time to incorporate most of the Bill of Rights against the states, things like the Free Exercise Clause and the Free Speech Clause that were individual rights to start with were incorporated rather easily. It took no great feat of imagination to say that what the federal government couldn't do prohibit the free exercise of religion, the state governments could not do. But the Establishment Clause was different. It was set up to maintain exactly the same compromise that the Article 6, Section 3 compromise was. It was set up to maintain federalism where the states um, had control of religion. Those were not the good old days. I'm not saying we should go back to them. I'm not saying they were the great way to do things. They, they led to terrible persecutions. They were a bad idea. Madison tried to stop it. He tried with two drafts of the First Amendment to impose bans on state establishments of religion, and Congress voted and bound both times. The fact of the matter is, what the, with the words, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion means, is Congress can do neither of two things. It can neither impose a federal establishment, which would overrule Virginia's disestablishment, or impose a federal disestablishment overruling Massachusetts' establishment, which they kept until 1832, by the way. When, when it comes time to incorporate that, what does it possibly mean to incorporate a federalism provision against the states without changing its language? That the states can't establish a religion? Well, what about the rest of it that says they could? Or put differently, how do you interpret a legal provision when the only thing you know for sure about it is that it no longer means what it says? And the answer is, unfortunately, if you're Justice Stevens, you pour secularist philosophy into it. If you're Justice Thomas, Justice Scalia, you look to history. And then uh, as the framers' papers have been ransacked from top to bottom, including their private correspondence. And Jefferson's Danbury Baptist letter wars with Washington's farewell speech, with, with Madison's detached memoranda, all of which are not the Constitution. So the, the Establishment Clause is now as incorporated as a conundrum and I think cannot provide meaningful principle guidance to what we should do. The Free Exercise Clause, as incorporated, can do that. And I think the standard is coercion and it brings us back to where we were. Thanks. Can I just make one quick yeah. comment? Just, I mean, you're, you're talking about the, the incorporation. No one's talking about an incorporation issue here. We're talking about the federal government and the federal national pledge of allegiance and the federal national motto. So I don't know why you're, you're going into federalism here. Well, the federal government, if, if your argument is the federal establishment clause as it was originally designed bars the uh, pledge of allegiance being amended by the federal government, as opposed to the case that you're making in California court, which is that state, state uh, actors can't require kids to say it. Well, the short answer is that nobody in the uh, Washington cap capital thought that the federal government couldn't be involved with religion in any degree. The uh, day after Jefferson, literally the day after Jefferson wrote his Danbury Baptist letter, he attended church services in the well of the House of Representatives 
and brought along the Marine Band from the White House to accompany the hymns. Nobody saw religion the way you see it at that time and that place. The fact is that I, I already gave you two quotes. There's not a shadow of right. No power is in the federal government to intermeddle with religion. I don't know how you can say that nobody saw it that way when the only quotes that are on the subject say exactly that they all saw it that way. Because can you give me a single quote where a framer said the federal government has the power to interfere with religion? We're not interfering with religion. Hmm? They're not interfering with religion. They're not, they're, they're, they're not, they're not taking they're a position their on religion. That there is a God who is the source of their rights. It's a philosophical question. It's not a religion. It's not a religious question. That there's a God that's the source of our rights. How about that Jesus is the source of our rights? Is that a philosophical question? It's too? a theological question. Well, how did that become theological and the other was... was because ever since Aristotle, the, 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 the tradition has been whether there is a God is a philosophical question. Who that God might be is theological. And where did that, that distinction come from? Aristotle to start with. Maybe Plato. Certainly not Washington or Madison or Jefferson. Jefferson bought into it. That's what the Declaration is all about. Jefferson, who said we can't have a Thanksgiving because it violates the Constitution. Thanksgivings were very different things back then. Okay. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> uh, Mr. Newdow, I think that to the extent you're relying on the Constitution, you're mistaken. That is, what you seem to be saying is that whatever the merits are of having religion mentioned in the public life to the extent it is now, it's not permitted. It has been previously authoritatively decided for us that that's not permissible. And there's really nothing we can do about that unless we amend the Constitution. Because that's what the Constitution was meant to do. And if we're law-abiding, well, your position's correct. And I think, as, as a matter of history, which you said you were, were, to some extent, rejecting, that's simply wrong. I mean, as the many things that uh, uh, Mr. Hassan says, the uh, uh, provision for chaplains at the, uh, in the legislature and so on, the idea that this had pre precluded the future from having any kinds of public expressions of religion is wrong. Public expressions of religion or governmental expressions Government, of religion? Government having a, uh, a crash on a, uh, a courthouse lawn. The idea that uh, that the kind of... The government putting it on, on the government's property? If, if you're saying that it is predetermined that the government could not, for example, have Thanksgiving in which the idea is thanks will be given to God, that's, that's probably not the case. You know, if you said this, all that has now been done with the, apart from the incorporation, which I think is entirely correct, that the main idea of the First Amendment religion clauses, of course, was to say federal government should keep out of government, out of religion, that's entirely for the states. As with speech and press and everything else. Well, th that's true. Well, okay. well, no, no, peculiarly religion. Peculiarly, religion was that that was to be left to the states. The governments have nothing to do with that. It's true. The entire Bill of Rights was meant to apply only to the federal government. But, you know, peculiarly, the idea was that the and states could have established churches, as you know, and they did. So to now say, no, this is all precluded because it's the Constitution, that's mistaken. Now, if you want to say instead, my position is one of public policy. I believe we should argue about this as what's a good policy for a nation to have. I'm not one of those people who runs to the court and asks them to enact what I can't otherwise get enacted, pretending it's the Constitution. I'm not one of those. I want to argue as a matter of public policy that my position is better. And you say some of that, really, when you come to the end or to the merits of this. 
as I understand it, your basic position on the merits is that adoption of your position would make for more harmonious living. That this way there's going to be endless conflicts as long as we have government, the federal and state, intervening or uh, responding to religion in the way they are now. That that's, that's your position. It's going to cause conflicts. Now, you know, that's true or not. It's an empirical question. And it seems to me, as I think to most people, that it's probably wrong. That what's causing most conflicts today and stirring people up is the ACLU's taking the crashes off the courthouse lawn. Most people, even most atheists. Why do you think you, why do you need that? Why do you need the government to help you? Are you so insecure with your religious beliefs? Well, first of all, I don't want to discuss. Why, why, why do you want to treat people un, unequally? First do you all, think that the Constitution that says no law respecting an establishment of religion, do you think that means to you that it's okay for the government to say your religious position is correct and my religious position no, is correct? No, what you're saying well, is... Well, don't you think it's saying that when it says that in God we trust, that we are a nation under God? What do those words mean? Mr. Now, when you say that this question is taken out of our hands because it's authoritatively predetermined, by the Constitution. Now, the Constitution is words, marks on paper. And the means, words are no law, even respecting an establishment of religion. Well, you know, now you're not arguing at the fairly high level you ordinarily do, because if the question is, what is the Constitution? I'm using the Constitution. What are you using? I'm using, it doesn't mean, you know, as a, as a matter of fact, it doesn't mean what you're saying it means. So no law doesn't mean no law. No law means, oh, law, it's okay as long well, look, as we despise you know, the atheists. Wait a minute. The Fourth Amendment. Can we do it to the Catholics, too? Yeah. You know, the Fourth Amendment says there should be no uh, unreasonable search and seizures. And, and, or all, all criminal trials will be uh, before a jury. And everybody knows that doesn't mean the states. That just means the federal government. That's right. right. Until we had incorporation, that's of, absolutely of correct. Of course. But the point is, it doesn't mean what it says. Because everybody knows it wasn't okay. meant. All right. so, again, I, I can't your, argue with that. Your position... Your position that this is basically this question is taken out of our hands. It has been authoritatively predetermined. And on that, I think uh, Mr. Hassan is closer to the truth than you are. So back to the merits. Is it a good idea or bad idea? You say it's a, it's, it's, we should get God out of the uh, God we trust and Declaration of Independence because it's going to cause strife and disagreement. Now, first of all, don't make any assumptions about my religion, which is not as far from yours as you think. <clears throat> Uh, but so that it seems to me it's more peaceful to, you know, we live in a country where most people believe in God. Most people are Christians. And it, these beliefs may have some actually socially beneficial uses. They seem to be more charitable and more willing to help other people than people who have your belief and maybe mine. And so, you know, they're not to be discouraged particularly. And it seems to make more peace to leave them alone. So I walk past the crash. I don't stop and kneel down, but it doesn't particularly bother me. It seems to me that's the road for, to peace and agreement and tolerance. Thank you, Professor Crowley. Um, before we t let's go to another question, and then we'll have you guys answer that. T.R. Yes, Shep from the University of Miami. Because my disdain for long-winded questions, I'm going to keep it simple. <laughs> Dr. Nidal, what religion am I supposed to believe in after reading the words on this little bill? What church am I supposed to run and join after reading In God We Trust? 
It doesn't say a religion in the Constitution. It says, it says religion. Establishment of a religion. No, it doesn't. You have to go reread the Constitution. It's, they considered a religion. They took that out. Madison proposed a national religion. They took it out. It's any law respecting an establishment of religion generally. What religion? It doesn't. It's not a religion. It's religion generally. It's belief in God. Unless you are like Seamus and you think belief in God or, or that God gives us rights is not a religious issue. I think that belief in God is a religious position. And I think that the government's not allowed to take religious positions because, as James Madison said, it degrades from the equal rank of citizens all those whose opinions and religion do not bend to those of the legislative authority. Just like when we take black people and we give them a separate water fountain, it degrades them from the equal rank of citizens. Thank you for your time. Seamus, did you have any... No, I've been through this. Respecting establishment of religion doesn't mean having anything to do with the idea of religion. It meant you couldn't, the federal government could neither overthrow a state's established religion as in Massachusetts or overthrow a state's disestablished religion such as in Virginia. That's all it meant. That's all it means now. The father of the Constitution said father no Constitution. power is given to the general government to interfere with religion. To the general least government, to the federal government. That's absolutely right. No we're power is given it's to the, the federal, federal government. Pledge of allegiance. It's the federal motto. And, if you, and we've incorporated it and to you the And you can look and too. see what he meant by that, by his behavior in, in the behavior of the entire founding generation in the District of Columbia, which was federal territory at the time. It still is. Like when he vetoed a bill on establishments clause grounds that would have allowed incorporation of a church, or when he vetoed a bill that would have given land to the, to the Baptists? I don't think that he was inconsistent. Sometimes he was when he was a politician, because politicians do that, as we've learned. Next question. My name is Kristen Morgan, and I'm a student at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. Um, I wanted to ask what I find to be one of the most interesting questions in First Amendment religious liberty, and seems has been an important one, is the definition of religion, how we want to define religion in this discussion. And I think uh, I'm kind of thinking of starting out, you know, with the Selective Service Act cases. What did it mean to qualify as a conscientious objector? even until very recent decisions about whether um, different churches, different religions that weren't even considered at the founding um, have recently been defined as a religion for the purpose of free exercise. There's been, especially I'm thinking cases about um, Scientology and Buddhism, having those rights um, as free exercise of religion. And it seems like there may be some, possibly some conflict or we're using different definitions and establishment of religion versus free exercise. And I especially um, had this come to mind, Dr. Newdow, when you mentioned you're speaking of, you know, the government using taxpayer funds to promote religion in the schools. But when we have these free exercise cases telling us that you have a, a right to practice religion um, of of Scientology, or even in one case, secular humanism, what um, is there, do we have even more things we need to be worried about with the federal government of establishing secular humanism or other different points of view in our public schools or in other areas? So uh, how broadly do you define religion versus? And whether they should be defined differently or the same and what implications that might have for free exercise and establishment. I mean, you're obviously getting into an area that's, that's very, very broad. 
basically, I think that the cases that I brought are very simple. We're talking about belief in God. And I don't think anyone can in any way say, except for Seamus, can say that that's not a religious issue. Okay? The government is taking a position on whether or not God exists. That's clearly religion. Whether or not you get into other areas where it becomes hazier, certainly that's going to be the case. Some cases, like the, the conscientious objector cases, where they say, you know, is it a, something that takes the place of, of a God in, in the lives of these people? You know, it's going to get complex. Um, it's not complex in these cases. It's very simple. We're talking about government saying either there is a God or there isn't a God. Government can't take either of those positions. And in reference to what Seamus said earlier, that, that you can't stay neutral, certainly you can stay neutral. Look at virtually every bill that the government passes. You know, when it passes a highway bill, it doesn't say God exists. When it passes a, an appropriations bill, it doesn't talk about God. We all get along fine. We could have in every bill that, you know, this highway will go here under God. Okay. It seems to me that that would be a religious issue and it shouldn't be there. It's actually a very profound question because the, uh, <clears throat> since the, uh, at least since the 40, well, since the 40s it's been settled that in, in free exercise cases the test is subjective rather than objective. You, you, you can imagine a situation where the government's going to have a test that says we'll tell if it, if it walks, waddles like a duck and it quacks like a duck and it, um, whatever else, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be a, a duck. We're going to have a test like that. If, if the church walks like a church and quacks like a church, it's going to be a church according to our objective criteria. Um, the only place in the IRS that flies in the government is the IRS. But, you know, the IRS is fam subject to the famous IRS clause in the Constitution. Uh, it arises from a number of found emanations from the Commerce Clause. Um, <laughs> The uh, IRS gets to do whatever it wants. Um, but apart from that, the question is objective or subjective. And the case came up in the, in the case of uh, um, the mail order. I mean, the name slipped my mind now. It was 1944. It was a mail order Elmer Gantry um, kind of guy who'd taking out ads in, in uh, national magazines saying send him money because he was in contact with St. Germain and the other ascended masters. And he was prosecuted on mail fraud and convicted uh, because um, he was taking money on the, on the grounds. And he appealed to the Second Circuit and said, nobody ever proved I wasn't the divine messenger. And lo and behold, the Second Circuit reversed and sent it back for trial on whether Ballard, that was his name, on whether Ballard was a divine messenger. Um, and the Supreme Court came to the rescue and said, no, we don't have to prove you're not a divine messenger. We only have to prove you don't really think you are. Um, so ever since then, it's been a subjective test, and that's where I believe it belongs. When you get to the Establishment Clause, the Establishment Clause, in my view, means so little uh, that it's, it's the fact that it means so little and is, is being required to mean so much that's caused all the, all the difficulty we should operate under the free exercise clause and co with coercion is the test and everything goes away. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, next question. Cameron Smith, University of Alabama School of Law. As we know, a lot of politicians garner votes because of their religious preferences, because in my belief, America is full of religious people, different perspectives, but religious nevertheless. Do you think that uh, and this is for both of you all. You can answer this. Um, morality also comes sort of into this scope. If a politician, say, acts 
uh, on behalf of the government, say the executive branch, says, I, I believe that we should act in this manner because it's the right thing to do. That politician also has strong religious preferences. Should that politician then be required to offer a race or not race? I'm thinking bats and challenges. Religion neutral explanation for, say, an executive order or something along those lines? That's to me, no, not at all. I mean, people have religious views. I'm not against people, individuals having religious views and, and utilizing those views to determine what they want to do and what they believe. Um, what I'm against is using the government to share those views and to enforce those views. But what happens when that individual is president of the United States? And, and George Bush has free exercise rights, and he certainly exercises them. Um, and, you know, he's allowed to do anything he wants. I would hope that as a third of the government, he wouldn't sit there, you know, as in his official capacity, espousing his personal religious views. It's difficult, and that's, that's one of the questions where it gets muddled. Um, but that doesn't apply to Congress passing statutes that say, the Pledge of Allegiance shall now say we are one nation under God. The nation's motto shall say, in God we trust. Those are very, very different. And again, I see that line as, as rather strong. So yeah, individuals can do anything they want. They, they, have, they have free exercise. Even rights. an individual in one of the co-equal branches of government? Even, sorry, which one? I mean, it seems that an executive is one voice. You have a legislature no, that I, I agree. I think a number be, of voices acting collaboratively. How, how do you make that distinction? I, I think, well, because the Congress doesn't come out as a president. The president speaks, and that's the executive branch. Congress has to pass a law to speak. And that's easy to see. So I think when it's the president, I think it, it becomes, you know, much, much more difficult. He has free exercise rights, or she, when hopefully in the future. So that, that is certainly something we have to take into account. There are certain times when it's not a difficult question. And when Congress passes a law, that's one of those times. Thank you. Jamie? I don't think it's got much to do with the president's free exercise rights, to be honest with you. I um, think it has to do with the discretion that, um, government officials have and the lack of coercion against anybody so that nobody's free exercise rights are being violated. The whole game of saying the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause are in tension with one another is, uh, is a consequence of imagining that the Establishment Clause as incorporated means something other than what it did when it was unincorporated. Next. Warren Norad, I'm a student at Texas Wesleyan. First, I want to applaud Dr. Newdow's uh, acknowledgement that Condoleezza Rice would make a fine president someday. <laughs> uh, I also wanted to note that I was impressed by your willingness to allow uh, religious groups to use libraries or the public buildings if non-religious groups are allowed to do so. But what struck me as strange was you're against a National Day of Prayer and, and when it's okay for us to have a National Catfish Day. So do you think the National Catfish Day is also unconstitutional, or why does the argument break down between those two situations? Because government is taking a position when it has a National Day of Prayer. It's saying there's a God. Okay? You can't have a National Day of Prayer to God unless you assume that there's a God. 
And if, in fact, we were going to open up national days to all religions, which we don't, because atheists will never get a national day of atheism, at least not for a little while, okay, then maybe we'd have that problem. There's certain times when it's, it's a question of equality. The best way to stay equal is to stay out of the business altogether. If government has nothing to do with this, it stays equal and no one has any problem. Sometimes it opens up things, and it opens it up to everybody. That's not as good a way, I don't think, but it's a permissible way. But sometimes it only opens it up to one religious view. For instance, in the Pledge of Allegiance, there's only one religious view expressed there. In the nation's motto, there's only one religious view, and it excludes certain individuals. American citizens are excluded on the basis of their religious belief. And I don't understand why anybody wants to do that. Well, are you saying that the national trout people, because they can't get enough lobbyists, that they're in the same situation as the atheists? But the, since the catfish people have enough lobbyists to get the national day of catfish. And if we had a, had a national fish uh, provision in the Constitution, you'd be right. We don't have that. We have an a religion clause. Next question. If uh, public school children recited the first few paragraphs of the Declaration of Independence instead of the pledge, would you still be bringing your challenge? Not at all. I mean, that's, that's a historical fact. I have nothing against facts. If the teachers and the society, though, decided we're only going to say the words of the, pledge of, the, of the Declaration of Independence that talk about those four uh, instances where we talk about God, and that's all we're going to say, and we're going to do it because we all know that God exists, yes, then I would bring that case. If we're just saying the Declaration of Independence has a whole bunch of words, among them is the supreme judge of the world, nature is God, and the creator, um, then sure, that's fine. I'm not, I'm not hostile to religion. I'm against favoritism for one religious view. It's a very big difference. Thank you. Am I allowed to ask two questions? One's simple, one's complex. Well, the, the Let's the questions first. <laughs> sure. First question is, is not atheism also a religion? I think it is, constitutionally for sure. I'm not asking for atheism to be espoused by our government. Secondly, <laughs> after I thank both of you for making this the liveliest Federalist Society panel I have ever attended. <laughs> Secondly, Mr. Newdow, how do you rectify the legislative history of the First Amendment and your interpretation of it with the posthumous acts of that same legislature within the same week, and I think actually the same day, correct me if I'm wrong, um, of issuing the publication or requiring the publication of Bibles for the new nation and then holding a church every Sunday until I think 1820s, Seamus, you probably know, um, that was non-denominational. How do you rectify that? Or does it indicate a different interpretation than the one you are giving us? I think that some of the things that, you know, Justice uh, Souter says, you know, the framers were politicians like other politicians. They could raise constitutional ideals one day and turn their backs on them the next. I think that you have a history where, you know, for instance, Marsh v. Chambers, where they talk about the fact that, that the same day or within a couple of days of when they passed the First Amendment, they funded chaplains. 
Yes, they did fund chaplains. However, it was part of a bill that funded everyone. They funded themselves. It was to pay for every, all the government officials. And so to, you know, they would have had to specifically say, no, we're not going to fund chaplains here, okay, and come out and do that. I think you would have, like today, you won't be reelected if you do that. I think there's very great pressures, and that's why we rely on the judiciary to uphold the basic rights. Madison, if you go back again, you know, it's, it's an equal protection clause. I, I like to, to look at the, the memorial and remonstrance because I think it's a great document that, that talks about all this stuff. Fourteen times he mentions equality. Why does he keep mentioning that word? He says, why, why is Patrick Henry's bill to establish a provision for teachers of the Christian religion wrong? Because it violates the equality which ought to be the basis of every law. Because we cannot deny an equal freedom to those whose minds have not yield, yet yielded to the evidence which has convinced us. And the one that I mentioned before. Because it degrades from the equal rank of citizens all those whose opinions and religion do not bend to those of the legislative authority. He's talking about making people feel like second-class citizens. Why does anyone, you know, the, the Christians out there with their golden rule, why would you want to do this to people? What, what harm do you have in simply going out and exercising your free exercise rights? Why do you feel this need to take our government for everyone and impose your rights there, your, your religious view there? I don't understand it. It seems to me you, of all people, would be against this. And if you don't see it, imagine your children standing up every day, placing their hands on their heart and saying, we are one nation that denies God's existence. Tell me that the religious right wouldn't be going berserk if that was even considered. Why is it different for other people who don't happen to adhere to your religious views? I don't understand. Can I make two points? Yes, and then, I, then we'll have to close. <clears throat> the Memorial and Remonstrance is a magnificent document. It grounds religious liberty in a natural right. And it grounds that natural right in the duty that we owe to our Creator. That's James Madison. That's not any, any uh, Christian right fundamentalist. That's, that's Madison grounding religious liberty in the natural right, grounded itself in the duty we owe to our Creator. Second, isn't it interesting that when I cite Aristotle and Plato and the Western tradition for the philosophical notion that the existence of God is a question of philosophy. Dr. Nudas outsides the Supreme Court and thinks that the issue is settled. When the Supreme Court acts in a way he doesn't like it, the Supreme Court quickly goes overboard. I, I wonder if when we, and I assume we probably will reach the Supreme Court, if the Supreme Court um, happens to rule for me, if Dr. Newdow will say, oh, well, the Constitution doesn't really mean what I thought it meant because the Constitution commits its interpretation to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has said the Constitution means what Hassan says and not what I said. Therefore, I'm wrong. I'll go home. Or if he'll say, we've got to amend the Constitution, we've got to replace the judges, or whatever, because there is something he thinks the Constitution ought to mean. I'm not opposed to thinking that something the Constitution ought to mean, but it ought to mean what the uh, framers intended in and the natural right of religious liberty, not, not something else. And I think you ought to fess up to the fact that the Constitution either means something inherently or means what you, or should mean what you think it should mean because you think it should mean it. And you should fess up to the question of whether the Supreme Court is authoritative or not. Do not you, have it both ways. Do you think the Constitution means that we should respect all religious views among our citizens equally? I think we, we definitely think we should respect all the, the 
religious views among our citizens equally. I don't know that there's a clause in the Constitution that says we all should do that. I think the Establishment Clause says that. Equal Protection Clause says the government should do it. The Free Exercise Clause says the government shouldn't coerce anybody. The Establishment Clause doesn't say that. It says Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. Why? Because they wanted the states to be able to do it. That was the only reason. You was the only reason. You wouldn't need that clause to do that. You would just butt out. Why would you make a clause that has absolutely no effect? There's no, there's no reason to make an establishment. Well, just don't say anything. That was Madison's position. He thought it was a bad idea to even get into the whole business of... of well, actually, I don't think that's quite true. Madison wanted to apply the Bill of no, Rights to Madison, the states. Before that, Madison didn't want to have a Bill of Rights at all because he thought precisely what was going to happen happened, would happen. We're getting into a different issue. You've managed to get away from the exactly. fact that we should respect people's equal And I wish we equally. could continue this all night long because as Outside said, in the parking lot. Yeah. <laughs> This has truly been one of the most interesting and lively debates. The red light is on. Our time is up. I want to thank Dr. Nuno and Seamus for coming. Thank you very much.